Just a quick note before we get started with today's episode, we apologise for the audio quality from Dr Afsan. She was joining us from Barbados, which was experiencing a tropical storm at the time of recording. So thank you so much for bearing with us and we hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to Season 2 of Public Health Disrupted with me, Zand Van Tullican. And me, Rochelle Burgess. Zand is a doctor, writer and TV presenter and I'm a community health psychologist and associate professor at the UCL Institute for Global Health. Now this podcast is about public health but more importantly it's about the systems that need disrupting to make public health better. So join us each month as we challenge the status quo of the public health field asking what needs to change, why and how to get there. And in today's episode we're talking about the big stuff. I don't think there's anything bigger than it. And um, we're talking about death and dying. And this is something I've been thinking about a lot the past few months. My father passed away fairly recently, and it's been a difficult time for us in our families. We sort of come to grips with it. And so I'm really excited and also trepidatious to <laughs> sort of going into the episode today, you know, because of how big something like death is, but also very much inseparable from life. We're examining death and dying from the perspective of public health, getting philosophical as we tackle the big question, should we prioritize quality of life over length of life? As with so many things in public health, this is this is personal and public, and the sort of boundaries between that will be really interesting to discuss. And I think you're going to be in very safe hands because today's guests are amazing. First of all, we have Afsan Badilia. Afsan is a senior research associate in the Department of Global Health and Population at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. She's a Fulbright Scholar. She's visiting faculty at the University of the West Indies, Cape Hill, and she's a visiting scholar at the University of Miami Institute for Advanced Study of the Americas. And Afsan is a health systems and disparities researcher, which is a bit of a mouthful. We're going to hear much more from Afsan shortly about exactly what all that means. Loosely, it relates to applying complex systems theory and metric science to examine social and structural determinants of health inequalities. So inequalities could be related to gender, for example, chronic diseases like cancer. And Afsan also serves on multiple Lancet commissions, including the Lancet Commission on the Value of Death, an absolutely extraordinary publication. And she has previously co-chaired the task force on women and non-communicable diseases. And we're also joined by Dr. Libby Salno. Libby is a palliative medicine consultant with Central and Northwest London NHS Foundation Trust. She's also an honorary senior lecturer at St. Christopher's Hospice and the UCL Marie Curie Palliative Care Research Department. Libby has 20 years experience shaping the fields of new public health approaches to end-of-life care, compassionate communities, two of my favorite words combined there, and social approaches to death, dying, and loss, not just in the UK, but all over the world. Libby has written extensively on this topic, published over 25 articles and book chapters on death and dying, and she co-edited the book International Perspectives on Public Health and Palliative Care in 2011. Most recently, Libby is also the first author of the new Lancet Commission on the Value of Death, Bringing Death Back into Life. Uh, I should also say that Libby is almost my next door neighbour, which is very nice. And that's how I got, a, I got a sneak preview of the Lancet Commission on the Value of Death, which really is remarkable. And in those sort of huge bios we've just done of both our guests, you know, this is a deeply meaningful, philosophical, complex topic. And that really comes across in their writing. 
Afsan, you're coming at this topic from a research standpoint. Can you sort of give us an overview of how you begin to think about the research areas you want to look at when it comes to death and dying? Thank you, Zand and uh, Rochelle. Glad to be here. And, and it's, an, it's a big question. Death is, is so personal and it's so complex. And, and what we've presented in the report is that death systems exist. And these are these interactions or arrangements in any society that impact how people experience the dying and death. And so it's the collection of experiences and outcomes that vary by the culture and community, which then assigns different meanings to death. A lot of what I work on is trying to understand the complexity uh, of systems and in this context, the death system, and how we might have appropriate measures that help us prioritize in a way that is reflective of the social values around death and dying. These are things that, because we're all facing this, well, not I was going to say one way or another, but really, we're just all facing it. What is the death system? It's individuals, it's patients, it's caregivers and families, it's policymakers, it's community leaders. So it's all the different actors who are, you know, in any part of life, we think about social systems, we think about health systems. And so it is also the different types of symbols and rituals that occur when we think about death and dying. It is how we organize, understand, regulate, manage death, you know, and it, it, this is what determines um, how people die and mourn. And like any complex system, death systems, they're dynamic, they evolve, they change over time, and the death experience is adapted based on the changes in culture and the conversations that are happening around death. When we're thinking about healthcare, what what are the different services that need to be available to be responsive as the death system is evolving? What is the data that we need if we are to, to make sure that we have people-centered health systems? How are we collecting those and, and acknowledging the different voices that are part of the death system and, and the experiences that people have? And people come from various different perspectives. And as I mentioned, you know, cultures and different things, symbols and literals, like I mentioned, that, that, that I think determine what is considered a good death or a bad death. So when we think of a health system, that same level of complexity would apply to a death system, maybe even more so. That's amazing. Exactly. I mean, that's so fascinating and seems also so so logical, but I've never thought of it that way. <laughs> you know, I've had sort of a background in training in like anthropology and ethnography kind of thing, right? And so this idea of ritual is, you know, it's like the meat of it, isn't it? Like of, of life is very much about ritual. And, but in a weird way, it has always felt like it, that sort of ritual happens separate of the health system. And of course it shouldn't be. And I guess I wonder if sort of thinking about my experience with palliative care. So I want to turn to you now, Libby, you've been working in sort of palliative care for two decades. What are your thoughts on that feeling of that, that false separation? Am I totally going getting out of no or is that does that feel right to you you're on the money Rochelle and I think <laughs> there's no surprise that you're you know you've been Woo! thinking about these bigger issues from a different angle you know not death and dying but thinking about ritual about community about connection belonging loss love you know all of these things it's how we experience life and it's so interesting thinking about how public the public health role of this because often you know love intimacy life connection relationships you know, family, friends, community, religion don't seem to come under the kind of gaze of public health. Often we think they're kind of separate. We do health in buildings with professionals with very clear 
boundaries and hierarchies and then the rest of the stuff is out there. But what we absolutely know is all about the role that communities, relationships, connection have on our physical health, on our mental health, on how long we live. And and similarly, where we die, how we die, what we die of, how our families experience that death, how they take that bereavement on, the sense they make of that, the legacy we leave. All of that is intimately connected. And one of the problems is that for too long, as you said, there's this been this kind of false separation. Like this is where you get the morphine or the hospital bed or the kind of review of your nausea and your kind of decision about where you'd like your care. And here is where the rest of this stuff happens, the ritual, the meaning making. And actually, as human beings, we connect, we, we deal with this all together. And so that's why we... Way and many other thinkers in kind of the end of life or the death systems field, the death space have been looking at how we bring these models together. And so compassionate communities, new public health approaches, these are kind of some of the terms that have come out as we've tried to, to kind of bring these two separate worlds together. And we know that how people experience a death of a close person, of a loved one or a family member or a friend is with them forever. You know, old models of bereavement are around, right, you complete your grief work, you kind of get on with it, and then you get back to your normal life. And life is never the same after you lose someone close. And that's part of our human condition. And and the, the grief work is really making sense of that and bringing that person into our life going future to the future and making sense of it. And actually having the kind of false separation doesn't help with that work you know, it's a cycle of how people live, how people die, how people grieve. It it all feeds into this, how we are as people. So we're trying really hard to bring that back in. I wonder if you could talk a bit more about what is a compassionate community? So compassionate communities are essentially kind of initiatives, catalysts, spaces created to allow communities to respond to death, dying, in and grief in their own way. So it's saying that everyone has a responsibility for this. Death, dying happen to all of us at different times, and we all have a role to play beyond just palliative care or healthcare professionals. So for some compassionate communities, they started a bit like the mutual aid groups that started in COVID, where groups of people on the street or in an apartment block or um, related to a church or a mosque come together and say, okay, we've got to support people around us who are grieving, who are caring, who are dying. And they might approach a hospice or somewhere else to get some support around the how, what and when and how to support that. But essentially, they're groups who are taking action locally to have conversations, make death, dying and bereavement less of a stigma. Often people don't know how to even start a conversation with someone who's bereaved. Sometimes it's direct care, supporting people who are looking after people who are dying, caring for them, doing rotors of food and shopping and connection. And other times it's about creating spaces in that community, saying death is something that we affects us all. And by not talking about it, it makes it harder. The podcast, I guess, is called Public Health Disrupted. And I often think one of the things we're both very interested in is the extent to which the traditional models of public health, but that sort of very biomedical Western approach, the sort of highly rationalized, cost-effective mindset is at the root of a lot of problems. To what extent is sort of public health and and modern Western medicine causing some of the difficulties that you're, you're trying to solve with this approach? Yeah, and it's actually kind of paradoxically, some of the the achievements and successes of public health and to some extent medicine, um, clinical medicine, they've 
achieved you know great things over say the past 50 years specifically increases in life expectancy reduction in um, clinical diseases you know life expectancy for and maternal mortality under fives mortality you know these huge improvements have been made and so this increased life expectancy this increased numbers of conditions that would previously been fatal people are, are being cured from this kind of creates this this kind of narrative that things are always curable there's always a cure Whereas obviously death is not infinitely deferrable. With the allure of medicine and achievement and continual progress, the sense is actually that there will always be one more cure. And so when people actually reach a point where there is no cure, it's very, very hard. I often say that death and dying are a part of health and well-being. They are not a failure of health and well-being. I think that's one of the challenges. So we've been almost a victim of our own success, but we have not looked at where things you know, in death cannot be uh, changed and pushed back inevitably. And it's not, we, we did, Afsan and I, when we were working on the commission, we looked across at different policy reports. So like looking at healthy aging from, you know, international organizations, national organizations, various different, you know, liver, aging, different conditions. No one mentions death and dying. If it's not there in the policy narrative, it's not there in the community narrative, it's not there in the kind of health systems narrative, then where... Where, where can people understand about it? And so this one of the recommendations from our report was to end the silence in policies and narratives in, in the media on normal death being a part of life. It's somehow missing. Quite often we had patients, I remember when I was a junior doctor, they'd be saying to one of the senior doctors, you know, am I going to die? And uh, my boss would go, yes, but not from this. But that strange thing that there was almost in everyone's psyche is the idea that they might be actually able to avoid death completely and the billionaires the billionaires race to live forever probably hasn't helped this as well the sort of narrative that if you spend enough money yeah we made some explicit links with immortality and climate change and death and dying at the beginning of our report and what we were trying to say is that with the with the kind of quest for increased longevity or achieving immortality which has got some pretty big backing you know this is these are some serious efforts around the world to defeat death and control death is the same as this idea that actually we are not part of nature we are in control of nature and the same with climate change we are not responsible to it we are part we are responsible uh, we are you know we're in charge of it and the same with with that so we drew some quite clear links uh, between climate change, climate destruction, quest for immortality, and our essential denial of death as part of life. <laughs> denial is the most powerful of mechanisms, isn't it? You yeah. just take it and repeat it in every sphere of your life. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's having some really big effects. I mean, obviously, looking beyond, you know, more focused on healthcare and outcomes than, say, climate change mm-hmm. and immortality. But we looked a lot at overtreatment. There's been many, many reports looking at overtreatment in terms of, you know, just even using antibiotics or unnecessary surgical interventions and the huge impact that's having on individuals, on healthcare economies, and particularly as we look towards universal health coverage. You know, there is a finite pool of resources and we need to be really careful, you know, steward those and make sure that they're achieving the intervention they're meant to. I want to pick up this idea that there's always one more thing that can be done. And we can't accept this idea of what what the end of life is, that that death is part of life. It's a natural part of life. And, you know, one thing that came up in the process of working on this report was in the U.S. context. We don't usually say the word die. We say someone passed away. We have these euphemisms. We can't have the difficult conversations about death. The idea that if someone dies, that you get two days off. 
And then you should be able to move on and be productive and, and, and move forward. Oftentimes the question is, what do we prioritize? Is it thinking about quality of life or, or prolonging life? And if we're to be truly disruptive, I think we need to ask, how can we prioritize quality of life and prolonging life and avoiding premature death? We can't be in a world where millions around the world are dying in pain without access to opioids, when their suffering can be so easily relieved with low-cost options. We shouldn't have to choose between those who are suffering needs to be relieved as compared to you know, lifelong interventions. It's, I don't think that's the idea. How limited they truly are is determined by the societal values that govern allocation of resources. So if we prioritize human suffering, if we prioritize issues of, of health justice or justice overall, we can prioritize differently. I think we can expand there's it's a greater allocation to, to health in national budgets. We need to think very disruptively in, in terms of how our decisions are made, how priority setting is conducted, who makes those decisions, and the metrics that we use. So are those metrics developed by experts or are they developed by, you know, through community engagement, through community partnership? And most metrics that are used by health policymakers, for example, are not. And so I think this is a big issue. Patients want their suffering to be relieved. Family members don't want to see their, you know, their loved ones die in pain. And so I think that we, we need a real disruption in our priority setting processes. I guess there's so many things that pull at a lot of the... I suppose the angrier bits of my work <laughs> that are about sort of resisting systematic oppression, exclusion, injustice, that really you see in death that those same inequities are reified. The people who have access to life-saving treatments to over the sort of the over-medicalization of life, it means that many people, the same people, always the same people in the same parts of the world are denied access to good death or that term of a good death. You're absolutely right. And we use the, the social term, sorry, the social determinants of death. That's just the same as the social determinants of health and well-being that, you know, how you live, how you die, how your the decisions you have been able to make, the decisions that you've not been able to make, all of those will influence how you die, how you care for those who are loved and how you grieve. And those injustices and those inequalities are just as prevalent. And I see them every day, even in my care in London. They exist everywhere. It's this marginalization of, of dying and grieving because of differentials in power, distribution of power and resources within death systems. It's about unequal you know, social, economic, environmental conditions in which people live and die. And it's discriminatory policies and practices that impact the death trajectory. And some of this occurs, this marginalization occurs at the intersection and coexistence of multiple identities that, you know, that shape our existence, such as race, gender, sexuality. We have to take an intersectional approach, a lens uh, to understand the realities that many communities, you know, different identities that further isolate them. From a gender lens, widows, when their husband dies, they don't have access to property or assets or restricted movement certain cultural practices. And when we think about, you know, LGBTQ plus communities, if, if you're not even allowed to attend the funeral of your partner and, and how, you know, that, that can impact and relate to complex grief when we think about health inequities, these are vast 
and, and worse, in fact, probably at, at the end of life when it's such a complex period of per, for the person experiencing death and then the loved ones around them. Yeah. I mean, that point about widows also is such an important oh. one. It just really also shows you like the inseparability of death from its contextual mm. political and social realities. And that's why it's so ridiculous to think that we could could meet, not solve, but even begin to address these challenges through a biomedical lens. Like they're just not experienced through that. You know, you need aspects of that, of course, but that can't be the totality of our response, death, dying, loss, caregiving, grieving, you know, a meeting with a doctor, a nurse, a hospital bed. That just that just can't be the kind of totality of it. And that's just seems so shocking when you put it out like that it seems ridiculous of course we need more than that but somehow that isn't happening and that's where the compassionate communities movement new public health approaches kind of death awareness movement so many different really vibrant movements are happening around the world where communities are just saying this isn't okay this is not something that can be solved by a doctor or a nurse visiting even my home yet alone being seen in hospital we're seeing across many communities in the UK but also around the world that these traditions knowledge skills around what to do when someone is grieving how to care for someone when someone's dying they're being lost and I see this a lot in my practice when I go to support people who are dying at home and people often say to me I have no idea how this works like how does someone die what actually happens and what do I need to do and I think it's again coming back to the kind of unanticipated or unintended consequence of public health and medicine, improve, improving our life expectancy, improving people's the cure rate of conditions, because people haven't seen someone die then, often till much later in life. Whereas in previous generations, you would have seen young babies die, there would have been people dying at home. And we've also, when people do die now, it's in hospital or in care homes. So even when people are dying in later age, people just aren't, it's not happening in a kind of familiar setting around their, around their home. So people say, what actually happens? Without these kind of basic skills and knowledge, death is a very, very frightening event. Afsan. Yes. You're joining us from Barbados. Yes. I always mess up Barbados and Bermuda because <laughs> I'm Jamaican and I only know about Jamaica. <laughs> but you're joining us from Barbados. And it, it just made me sort of wonder, you know, your work is very much global and sort of, and you mentioned ritual before. And I sort of wondered if, if you could talk about sort of how these attitudes to, to death and maybe this idea of a good death differ across the world. Like, you know, I, I think very much about my father and his passing and how in Jamaican culture, we would have wanted something different. He died suddenly mm. at home. So he died at home, but he died alone. And in, we don't like that idea of aloneness in Jamaican culture. I would not have wanted him to die alone like that. And so, but, you know, there are these ideas that shift and change all over the world. And I just sort of wondered if you could tell us a bit about that. Of course. And, and thank you for, for sharing about your father. And what you mentioned is, is very true. In different cultures, death can, in certain cultures, it can be a very private event. In others, it's much more community, right? It's about involving and presence of different people. In others, it's, you know, we think about information. So disclosure about death, even sharing if someone's died. There is, you know, differences in, in whether it's a celebration of life and, and how people mourn that varies. And it's quite complex how that can be experienced as, as we think about multicultural societies and, and what you're permitted to practice also. And that makes it quite challenging. Of course, then when we think about death, 
in very complex settings. Right now, you know, there is a war in Ukraine, how death is occurring there. The lack or ability, lack of ability to have the appropriate rituals. They're com- we've experienced a pandemic or still in the middle of, of it. And the inability for people to say goodbye, to, to be near one another. The shock to the system, to the death system can have a huge impact. We have plenty of funding when we want to decide to have wars, but we don't have enough money for morphine. Just to add in kind of the role that COVID, not wishing to, to go back to COVID again, you know, but I think the difference, and I think we're just only beginning to understand the impacts that that and other situations, like our sons mentioned, around conflict and humanitarian disasters, where actually the kind of death systems are disrupted. So the normal patterns of support, of coping, of medical support, of grieving are entirely disrupted. And I think the impact of that on making sense of that grief, making sense of that loss, understanding how that person could have had care or, or, or was not able to have care, I think we're only beginning to feel the impact of that. And there's something about the collective nature of that through COVID that has brought it home, I think, to people. But I think we're still in the, in the point of making sense of what that means. You can't really have conversations about death without actually having conversations about politics. And I think in a way, perhaps I knew that, but it's very much the decisions and and not just in sort of in conflict zones where the politics are right in your face, but distribution of resources is is deeply political. And I would almost prefer rather than to say, oh, social determinants, maybe it's a whole other podcast. I've got beef with that term now because it (laughs) it sort of presents these determinants as if they're passive, like they just emerged one day as if they weren't purposely created by like people making decisions about where some people can live and where they can't live about what some people are paid Mm. and what they're not paid about why some life is valued and why life isn't that is inherently political and about power you'll never fix social determinants if we don't talk about the fact that they are politically determined the sense i have from libya and afsan is that a good death is within our grasp, there are barriers, but it's not, you know, the, the, the lie we tell about healthcare is that it's too expensive to give to everyone, but the inequality has to exist, which is absurd. But with death, a good death is not enormously expensive the way that treatment of a severe illness would be. I, maybe that isn't true, I, but that's one thing that struck me. The other thing very quickly is that as a doctor, I feel like I've always thought of this yin and yang, this balance of going length of life versus quality of life. That's the decision. And that actually seems like a false dichotomy from what you're saying. In fact, it's not two sides of a coin. In fact, the same things that give you a, a shorter life and a worse quality of life will give you a worse quality of death. And all those same factors come into play. One of the challenging things a lot with the UK policy narrative around end of life care is that a lot of stuff is presented as a choice when in fact it's not a choice. And that comes back to a lot what Rochelle, Rochelle was saying around the political structural determinants of the decisions. So you may say, I'd like to die at home, but if that isn't a possibility because of the way the home in which you have, that may not be a place of safety, that may not be a place of refuge. There are many, many kind of nuances when you look at choice. And I think the issue often that's wrong, and this is again another podcast around kind of consumerism and healthcare, this sense that actually it's ours to have. So the idea that, well, can you choose quality of life over length of life? Is that a choice that actually in reality healthcare systems are presenting to people? Even in the UK, certainly not globally, that choice is not open to many people because of these structural determinants of how 
people live and how people die. And that's what we've got to remember is that death isn't this kind of separate add-on. It's a part of life. So the healthcare decisions and the health outcomes that people are getting, we must consider how people are dying, caring and grieving within that. It cannot be a separate add-on. It's a, it's part of the totality of life. And you mentioned how expensive is a good death. Well, I think part of that is related to our perception of what, what end-of-life care should look like, right? So if we have these fragmented death systems where is really where death is more medical rather than being a social event. We're not connecting to community interventions. We're not connecting to social systems. Then of course we're not really taking account of all the different aspects that amount to a good death. Going back to this point on palliative care and how affordable it is, for example, is you know we did this calculation around looking at the universal health coverage schemes, the traditional you know the the, the costing of them. The calculation is that if you were to provide an essential package of palliative care services, it would be $3 U.S. dollars per capita. It is 3% of the cost of the UHC package. It is low cost. And so it really comes back to what we value, what, what you know, how we prioritize. And, you know, and, and Rochelle, you brought up earlier, I agree, could not agree more. It's the, the power and privilege or lack thereof of many individuals to influence priority setting in a way that is truly reflective and inclusive of, you know, what people want at the end of life. As an aside, Afsan, you ended quite poignantly the last time saying there's always money for war. And it, it feels from what you're saying, there's always, there's lots of money to kill people, but there isn't any money to allow them a, a good death, sort of in exactly. that peculiar That's right. irony of the military industrial complex. I don't know why I felt the need to. <laughs> death is political too. I think that's a good thing to reify say yeah. it again. And we've got to say power, this has to come into this. And we, there's a whole section in the report, actually, that we bring up the role of power in determining who dies, where they die, how they die, what they die of. And actually, palliative care is not talking about power. There's no way that that comes in. That's These are broader social discussions that need to be had on a higher level, and they're not at the moment. And obviously, war, humanitarian crises, bring some of these decisions around and discussions around health and support, but actually we're not having discussions around power in death at the moment. But what I was just going to pick up on your point about a good death, Sand, before we, before we move on, is that the solution doesn't only lie within the healthcare setting. So obviously, while we're looking at money to bring affordable interventions such as pain relief for people who have pain as they die, you know, that is an absolutely no brainer. And as Afsan said, the figures are really shocking. They It does not cost much at all. It would not cost much at all to meet that need, which is one of the most shocking inequities that exists at the moment in terms of how easy it would be to bridge that global pain divide, as we name it. But it's not within the gift of policymakers nor of um, healthcare services to bring a good death for people. They have a massive part. They're a big part of the jigsaw. But there's so much more. And that's the problem. We've got to be careful. We don't think through into thinking the solutions all lie in more services. That, you know, excellent access to services is an absolute prerequisite. But that is just to allow people to have the community connections to, you know, to not be in pain, to not be vomiting, to be in the right bed, to look after their skin, to have all of the right conversations so they know what's happening. But that, I always think of that's the platform in which good end of life care and a good death can be built on. But the next step is the real stuff, which is, you know, how can we make sense of this on a personal level? What are the conversations that need to happen? What do we need to say? What kind of legacy will they be left? How can the dying person support the people who are going to be left behind? What important conversations can be said? 
But as we so rightly come back to the kind of political, structural, social determinants of this, without that platform, you can't even begin to have that conversation. If you're in pain uh, and it's unrelieved, you're in a war conflict zone, you, you cannot have those conversations. So part of our job is to get all of that basis, that foundation, I think, that platform. We've got to build that. But on that isn't the end. That's not the whole point of a good death. The whole point is that then enables people to have these meaningful conversations. And that's when I see in people's homes deaths that families and communities would describe as good deaths. They take planning, they take discussions, they take really strong relationships. And I think that's the other con- the other kind of term I think we need to think about of relationships alongside power. You know, that's how things change. That's what mean things to people. That's what um, people remember. So, you know, all of that needs to be in place as well. So it takes planning, it takes resources, it takes capital in all its many senses. It takes experience and knowledge to know what's going to happen. There's so many pieces of that puzzle that are missing throughout the world. And that's what we hoped with the Lancet Commission we would bring together by using the idea of systems and a kind of, you know, a broader sense of like, what do we need to get in place so that more people around the world can die a death that they would describe as good. Yeah, and we need people-powered death systems and bringing dignity back to focus, which I think is so often forgotten. One thing that we haven't touched upon, and and I should have mentioned this earlier when we were discussing sort of the complexity of systems, it's it's not 100%, it's not just the healthcare system. We think about legal systems and laws around assisted dying. You know, all of this comes into play. It's a collection of all of these and, and relationships, as you noted, Libby, are critical and and being able to foster and sustain the relationships that people want to have, Mm. the interactions that people want to be able to have in their last Mm. moments of life and family members so that they can, you know, they can or don't experience complex grief. But linking back, you know, of course, working in the healthcare context or policy context as well is, is that there should be more linkage to know what the communities, right, that a system, health system exists within, what are the community based resources that are available, support groups, for example, that we can tap into and link into, they can refer to that are outside the healthcare system. And this often gets forgotten too. Actually, often health systems are inadvertently or potentially undermining these relationships. And that's so it's almost about, it's not about doing more, it's actually health systems need to do less, which is definitely cheaper to step back in terms of looking at if they could do less in certain places and more in other then that's, it's about repurposing that. They can be integrated, that they're out, they exist outside the system, but this, the death system overall can be more integrated to know what's available, mm. to transfer yeah. from one part of the system to the other. And, and that doesn't occur. And that's why a systems approach is so important to understand. It isn't about, yeah, healthcare stepping back and communities taking over or, you know, healthcare just taking over these parts and community doing that part. It's about an integrated approach, understanding you need all of these different components to allow people to die well and to experience serious illness in the best way they can. And at the moment, there's just those relationships don't exist within the system. I think there's even an awareness of all the different components that exist within a system. Healthcare teams need to know how to have conversations with the social network that surrounds people, for people who are lucky enough to have a social network around them. And how can we not disempower? How can we not undermine what's going on here? What are you doing? How can we support? Where are the gaps? What works? What are you doing that works really well? How can we learn from you so that we help other communities and other people who, are, who don't have this around them to kind of try and set up some of this? And all of that dialogue, and that comes around risk, responsibility, power, hierarchy, structure, all of that stuff, it's just missing at the moment. And that is definitely one of the next steps that we need to take. I say death will not be televised. And this is, of course, a play on the words of the poem by Gil Scott Heron, the poet and musician. You know, the original sense, the words being the revolution will not be televised. 
and this was used during the latter years of the civil rights movement in the United States and since, including you know, the recent calls to action with the Black Lives Movement. And the message is we can't be bystanders and won't get away with comfortably watching from our television screens or our phones when social justice is unfolding. And so death will not be televised because death occurs right now at the sidelines, which has been primarily placed in the hands of healthcare professionals. And we have to be active participants in shaping and creating the death systems we want to experience from within our families and communities to the systemic levers that we can impact. The final question that we ask all the guests who come on is about, I think we, we sort of call it an artifact because it could be anything, but something that disrupted your thinking. It could be a poem, it could be a piece of art, it could be an object, it could be a moment in your life, but something that has disrupted your thinking and kind of taken you down down the roads that you've gone down to, to the amazing work that you've, you've described today. I'll cheat and I'll give two quick examples. I think Nina Simone, who's not, you know, who's not only a musician, but also an activist who defied and disrupted. And I consistently listened to her music and her songs, which are about resistance, resilience, and there were political statements. And we've talked about how death is political. And she spoke truth to power. And, and listening to her music is such a visceral experience that almost jolts you to your feet. And the other is Arundhati uh, Roy, the writer and activist, who has been an immense source of, of, of inspiration. Her sharp imagery, you know, are, are, has kept me sort of thinking because she writes so poetically. And, she, you know, she's, of course, writes fiction and nonfiction. But there's this one quote that I think about from her. I have a post-it of it on my desk. There's really no such thing as a voiceless. There are only the deliberately silenced or the preferably unheard. And I think that often guides my work and what I do. Well, that, thank you so much. That's extraordinary. Thank you. I hear that in your work, Afsan. Thanks, Libby. It's really powerful. Ain't that the thing? <laughs> <laughs> and we see that everywhere. And I think that's the thing. We see it and it's not being picked up in, in death and dying. That's, yeah, I really hear that in the work you do, Afsan. <laughs> So my one is a, is a poem that I came across when I was about 15. Like many things, it kind of stayed with me and I have interpreted it in different ways and the impact it had on me, I think, only has only become clear really in the past few years. But it's a poem called Look Closer. Uh, it was written in the 1960s. I found it in a GCSE textbook. And when I read it initially, I couldn't actually read it out loud without uh, breaking down. It was such a poignant poem. It's a desperate plea to written to a nurse to be treated with dignity and to be treated as a person, not just an old body. When I first found the poem, it said it had been found in a locker after this lady had died and the nurse read it. And it is really a poem about life and that death is a part of life and that dignity must be you know, really at the core of everything that we do and treating people as people, not as bodies. And I think it was actually then later attributed to a writer who published it at the time. But it's such a powerful one. And at 15, I kind of couldn't quite realise, couldn't quite understand the implication of what it meant. But I knew it captured everything I felt was wrong with how healthcare systems were being delivered and what I wanted to do with a career in health in, in medicine. And I thought for a long time about going into care of the elderly. And then I found palliative care and this kind of sense of the humanity, the dignity, is so fundamental to everything that I do. And if we lose sight of that, I think, you know, we lose everything. I've now realized, actually, as I've reflected on, and it was really nice to get the chance to go back and read this poem again and really reflect. But similarly, I've had it um, in my books over the past years. And 
actually, I followed that thread through with my career. And much like us, and I can hear that her influences in her work, that I've even in her kind of metrics, highly complicated statistical work, I can see that kind of that drive. And this similarly drives me to see the human in everyone and the vulnerability of death and dying is something that we cannot ignore. And this and other you know, other experiences I've seen in my life really is a kind of, it it inspires me to not give up and to keep driving because we can change things. And actually these are universal experiences. And this poem suggests, you know, this is nothing, there's nothing radical or different about this. It's just a, it's a very normal experience that we will all go through. We will all go through at different times and it's up to us to change it. And give up, you have not, Libby, because you have been the driving force behind all this work that we've been doing and leading us forward. So thank you for that. And we hope that the publication of this report will be a real kind of milestone and galvanizing report, getting these bigger discussions around the political, structural, social determinants and alongside the kind of hyper-personal side, which is what also death, dying and grief brings out. We've all got personal experiences, which you know, motivate us in different ways, but we've all got a stake in this death system. What an amazing note to end on. Nina Simone, Arundhati Roy, and Look Closer. That is so extraordinary, that set of disrupting influences. Thank you very much indeed. You've been listening to Public Health Disrupted. This episode was presented by me, Rochelle Burgess, and Zan Van Teleken produced by UCL Health of the Public and edited by Annabelle Buckland at Decibel Creative. And if you'd like to hear more of these incredible discussions that we can really only have at UCL Health of the Public, do make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. Come and discover more online and keep up with the school's latest news, events and research. Just Google UCL Health of the Public. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights and expertise through events, digital content and activities that are open to everyone.